Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a talk with Joel Hodgson, creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000, as the popular show with Minnesota roots celebrates its 30th anniversary and the kickoff to pheasant season. But first, if you were asked to name a major fire in Minnesota that claimed the lives of hundreds, you might answer the Great Hinckley Fire of September 1894. While that fire was extremely devastating, it wasn't Minnesota's worst natural disaster. The worst was actually the October 12th fire of 1918 in northeastern Minnesota. Tasha Radel has more. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the October 12, 1918 fire in northeastern Minnesota that claimed the lives of hundreds. For the next several minutes, we're going to learn more about this historic fire. And joining me is Barb Summer, an independent scholar from Mendota Heights. Barb, can you give us an idea of the path of this devastating fire? Yes, actually, and that fire took place, and I've got maps actually pulled up here, and there are a number of maps in various books, including the Fires of Autumn by Francis Carroll and and Frank Rader, and the new book by Kurt Brown called um, Minnesota 1918, When Blue Fire and War Ravaged the State, because this all came together at once. But the fires themselves, there were a number of fires. There were a lot of fires, actually, that converged into a firestorm, into several firestorms, actually, you know, the the, the tornadic kind of firestorm that we we hear about today even in in other and various places. In a sense, they followed some railroad lines because there were a lot of spot fires all summer long along the railroads that um, crisscrossed northeastern Minnesota. And so there was, there were a number of fires in the Moose Lake area, Kettle River and Moose Lake, that just burned through that entire area, burned the town of Moose Lake pretty much to the ground. Um, and that was one uh, from Bain down to Willow River, with Moose Lake being the center of the disaster area. That was one area. That was the southern kind of the you know the and and then as you go further up into northeastern Minnesota, there was a huge, huge fire area that burned Cloquet, Minnesota, to the ground. started up in Floodwood and Brookston, and then it sort of, I think, split. And so there was a fire, one branch of it, that went down and just burned the city of Cloquet to the ground. And that, not Carleton, not the county seat, but Cloquet. And then another branch of it burned down through northeastern Minnesota, heading to Duluth, and it burned woodland to the ground, Lakeside, Lester Park, to the ground, some of those outlying suburbs of Duluth, and then it jumped in various places into the city. So it burned um, Northland Country Club, it burned the entrances to the interstate bridges to the ground, um, it burned a lumberyard to the ground, and so it, it hopped into the city um, in various places as well as burning some of the central and suburban areas of the city. The, the statistics say that it burned 1,500 square miles scattered over 8,400 square miles of territory in northeastern Minnesota. Do we have any idea on the number of um, fatalities or the death count uh, due to this tragic fire? The official record is something like 432 known deaths. There were probably more because these were, especially the outlying areas, there were just a lot of 
you know, about people homesteading, people saying, you know, and uh, living on farms in remote areas. So when the when the Carlton County Vidette came out with the newspaper article, this kind of identifies the horror and on, on October 18th, and it's one that we've looked at and used a lot. And it's the headline in just black, you know, huge letters across the top of the paper. It says, awfulest fire horror in state's history. And it still is. And then it said probably 900 lives gone. So the, the official estimate is 432. It was probably much higher than that. But by the time people were found, they were buried in mass graves. There's a mass grave down in Moose Lake, especially with a, a huge uh, monument today still. Um, but at that, it was, it was, things were so devastating that people were just buried in mass graves and, you know, try to control the, um, try, try to, try, try to move forward after the fire as quickly as possible. I understand a number of people attempted to race out of the area in their cars, and many of them lost control and lost their lives on a very sharp bend. I think there were actually two death curves. The one that you're probably referring to is out of Pike Lake, um, on its way uh, between Pike Lake and Duluth. And yet there are photographs of just lines of cars having gone off the road. It was dark. It was murky. It was in the evening. There was a lot of smoke. People were driving. People were calling one another. I mean, saying, get out of it, get out, get out, get out, get out, anyone who had a phone. The telephone operator in Cloquet plugged in and called everyone who had a phone in Cloquet and said, get get out now. So people hopped on trains or got in their cars. And um, the trains took them to Duluth and Superior, their cars. They tried to drive it. And those who missed the road, you know, missed the turn in the road at Pike Lake, went off into the woods and were killed. That was called Death Curve, and I think there was also one in Moose Lake where the same thing happened as people were trying to flee toward Moose Lake. I'm visiting with Barb Summer, an independent scholar from Mendota Heights. Today we're talking about the 100th anniversary of the October 12, 1918 fire in northeastern Minnesota. Coming up after the break, we're going to focus on the aftermath of these devastating fires. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. We'll have more on the 1918 fire when Minnesota Matters returns. Your surgery is over. Oh, it's over? What happened? Hi, Mr. Detweiler. Dr. Newman here. You have a new knee. It went great. You'll be up and around before you know it. And it's all because of you. Uh, what did I do? You were captain of Team Detweiler. You told us everything we needed to know. Your medical history, your allergies and prescription meds. You asked me tons of questions. What your options to surgery might be, what to expect during recovery. You even asked me how many knee replacements I've already done. Huh, I guess I did kind of run the whole operation, didn't I? Mr. Detweiler, we couldn't have done it without you. Patient safety. It takes a team. And patient involvement is key. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. With more tips at orthoinfo.org slash patient safety. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Today I'm visiting with Barb Summer, an independent scholar from Mendota Heights, about Minnesota's worst natural disaster, the October 12, 1918 fire in northeastern Minnesota that burned towns to the ground and killed hundreds of people. Barb, you had mentioned before the break there were a number of spot fires along the railroad in northeastern Minnesota. Is it fair to say passing trains sparked the fires along the tracks? That's a really interesting question because there, there was a lot of discussion about it afterwards. What ignited the fire are a couple of things. The fires had burned all summer. I don't remember what the causes were, but there were little spot fires caused by the railroad engines just all up and down the railroad lines, and people just kind of lived with them, and there was always smoke in the air and that sort of thing. But it had been a dry summer. And then on October 12th, atmospheric conditions changed, and the humidity dropped and became very low. And there's actually a map in one of the books. There were a number of analyses done, you know, after the fire, um, mainly, among other things, to determine cause and that sort of thing. And the atmospheric conditions changed that day. It was a beautiful, beautiful, warm, sunny, wonderful day. No rain had fallen for some time. Fires were smoldering in the woods and up and down the railroad tracks. About 1 p.m., the wind began to blow, and the humidity was dropping and was low. And so suddenly the conditions became ripe for a disaster. It's just that everything came together in the early afternoon of October 12th. By 4 o'clock, the gale had become a 65 to 90 mile an hour hurricane of raging flames, is the way it was described at the time. Yeah, it was the perfect storm, so to speak. Yeah, and I'm embarrassed to say that I, it was, like I said, it was brought to my attention, this fire, but I don't recall learning about this in history class or anything Anything no, like that? No. And well, and uh, there's a good, re- there's an interesting reason for that. The Hinkley Fire is well known. You know, I, I think we all were aware of it. Um, and, but the 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 Cloquet, the Moose Lake Cloquet, and Duluth, it was part. Duluth was part of it. It's kind of called the Cloquet Moose Lake Fire because those were the towns that were completely wiped out it, for a couple of reasons. One, it happened in October, close to the end of World War One. We were coming up on Armistice Day, and there was war news all over the place. And that was dominating. There was a flu epidemic going on. That was dominating the news. There was a lot going on. And so even though this was a terrible fire, it was worse than the Hinkley fire, in a way, people say it kind of got lost in the rush of news of everything else that was going on nationally and internationally, especially nationally. And I think it's fair to say that the aftermath of this fire was felt for years and years and years after. What happened? You know, there were lawsuits. Reparations. Congress was involved at one point. You know, toward the end, um, the the politicians were involved. How how were these people? Once they signed up and said, "Yes, we've lost everything. We've survived, but we've lost everything." Then how? You know, what were the, there were a lot of court cases, and they went on for seventeen, eighteen years, seventeen years, something like that. Sort of working everything, working its way through the courts until people finally. I think it was in 1934 the uh, Cloquet Pine Knot and, and others too, but there were, the railroads were considered to be the cause of the fire and the railroad administration, it was a nationalized administration at the time because of the war, but the individual railroads were running their own railroads. And so the railroad administration and the railroads were, you know, considered to be the cause of the fire and held responsible for reparations. And that went on for a long time through the courts with appeals and 
the Minnesota Supreme Court upholding decisions and et cetera, et cetera. And then they're paying about 50 cents on the dollar and then people going to the, to Congress, to their Congress people, their kind of their representatives and senators and saying, is there a way to finish this off? And on August 27th, 1935, a bill for resolution of the fire claimants cases passed Congress and was signed by President Franklin Roosevelt. And it added ten million dollars to the reparations package of the of the people. And so, um, at that point, um, the reparations, the amount paid to fire sufferers, came to twenty three million five hundred thirty eight thousand nine hundred ninety dollars and twenty nine cents. And so, you know, about ten million from the government and the rest from the from the railroads through various lawsuits. Then the checks started going out to people, and on December sixth, nineteen thirty five. The Cloquet Pine Knot put out an addition with the headline again in big black letters saying the debt is paid. <laughs> so it took a long time. This fire burned fast. And then the, everything else, documenting the claims and then, you know, working through the courts to make sure people receive some reparation for this disaster. Uh, it was a, a long and an interesting story. Thanks again to my guest, Barb Summer, an independent scholar out of Mendota Heights. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Joel Hodgson created Mystery Science Theater 3000, or MST3K as it's known to fans, in Minnesota in 1988. The show takes place in the not-too-distant future and features a human host and robot sidekicks Cambot, Tom Servo, Crow, and Gypsy. They're all shot into space and forced to watch bad movies as part of a human torture experiment. The crew makes things bearable by making fun of the films. The show, which built an impressive cult following, went off the air in 1999, but made a remarkable comeback on Netflix last year after a very successful Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign. A second new season is due in November, and the show is going to be on the road with a tour that also arrives in Minneapolis next month. I recently spoke with Joel Hodgson about the show's success and what it means to be celebrating 30 years of MST3K. Well, it's obviously slightly unreal. Um, I'm so grateful that it happened. Um, Let's see. um, I mean, the big thing is showcasing, um, you know, the new talent, you know. Um, We... um, had a nice long run obviously with mystery science theater and we um i was it went dormant for over 15 years and um i was able to bring it back and we did a kickstarter as you know that was that brought the show back and um and so the big thing was refreshing the show um with new talent and new writers and so we did that we were we're currently on Netflix. Um, to um, brag a little bit, we're like their uh, number one show based on Rotten Tomatoes. We're 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Not sure. I don't think that'll last. Like the <laughs> next season's really bad, actually bad, so I don't think it'll last. Can you- can you expand on that a little bit when you say that it's bad? Do you mean that the, the movies being uh, poked fun at are bad or the shows themselves? 
Well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we we just kind of got really lazy with the second season. We got kind of so, you know, the success of um, being Netflix's number one show really went to our heads, and we just kind of sloughed off the second season is what I'm saying. I'm just kidding. I, I think it's – I actually think it's better than um, – I think it's actually better than last season, and um, we're just about to announce it next week when the shows will be coming out, but uh, I think people will be really excited when we're going to do it, when the 30th anniversary um, shows come out. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of giddy. I don't know if a lot of what I'm going to say is going to make sense today. <laughs> well, that's good. I, you know, I, I, of course, I could go back and edit this so that I don't get you saying you're just kidding about how horrible the new season is, and then I could put that yeah, out there. Yeah, you could there. do that. I think I, I just assume you're going to have to do a lot of post production on this interview. Wonderful, thank you. The more work yeah. for me, the better. Thanks, I appreciate yeah, that. <laughs> sure. I give you license to make it make sense. So it's got to be, first of all, congratulations on the success of the show. It's great that you, after all this time, can, can feel giddy about something that you, uh, you know, that you gave birth to 30 years ago, basically. Uh, you're close to it, so this might be difficult to answer, but what do you attribute the show's success to? I mean, it, the fans out there that love the show love the show. Well, listen, since we're on in Minnesota, i got to give props to you know, the people in uh, the Twin Cities, man. And there's just, I, I say this all the time, I'm not sure we could have gotten the show off the ground anywhere else um, than Minneapolis. You know, number one, um, you know, I had left L.A., was pretty fed up with it, wanted to come back to Minneapolis. I went to college at Bethel College, and I felt like, there's a really good talent pool in Minneapolis. I used all local people um, after coming back from L.A. And we made Mystery Science Theater with, um, yeah, all people that lived, like, within a 20-mile radius or so of the Twin Cities. So um, it's really about Minnesota. I think um, the people, the audiences are so encouraging. Um I'll do an impression of a Minnesotan after a show. Please do. Oh, you guys are so funny. <laughs> oh, I want to encourage what you do so much. It's really doing the Lord's work when you think about it. Does that sound <laughs> like I'm doing a Minnesotan? I don't know. It definitely is. But anyway, they're very encouraging. They're really they love comedy, and as you know, there's always been a great theater scene and a live show scene. Lots of great bands, you know, come out of Minneapolis. A lot of great performers come out of Minneapolis. It's just one of those um, really special places. So, um, yeah, like I said, couldn't have come out, couldn't have happened anywhere else. Um, another thing, I guess, about MST is, um, you know, people are. These last batch of interviews, this latest batch of interviews I'm doing, people will bring up social media and suggesting we suggested how social media would work. And I guess, you know, this is the part you're going to have to edit because this already sounds like I'm bragging. <laughs> um, Minnesotans but, but can't brag, right? People have brought it up. People have brought
brought it up, and and it's just that we were the first show uh, to use a shared screen, meaning the comics and the audience were looking at the same thing, and that's what social media is, is you're kind of looking at the same thing and able to comment on it. So, so I think that's also maybe why it's the first show that was kind of doing that. You're taking the show on the road here for the 30th anniversary. You'll be in town at the State Theater in November. Uh, for, for people that are curious about it, what can they expect from the live shows? Well, it's, it's like watching Mystery Science Theater in your front room, but there's 1,800 other people with you watching it at the same time. So, um, and everyone's incredibly quiet. I'm just kidding. It's just <laughs> really loud, and people have a good time. And so that becomes the real art of it is when you're performing live is you have to kind of edit because the audience, every, every night, you know, we'll do 40 shows, uh, 42 shows, or 40 shows before we land in Minneapolis. So the art of it is while you're performing, um, you have to, like, listen. And sometimes they'll laugh in really unusual spots that you're not ready for, and they'll laugh longer at certain things than they did the night before. And you got to be ready to, like, edit your stuff. Like, oh, they're laughing over... See the movie. It's not like a stand-up where the audience, where the, the stand-up just stops when the audience laughs and then he picks up again. We the movie keeps going, and so we have to actually edit and drop out. And uh, oh, I have a line. They're laughing over the setup to my next riff. I gotta wait. I'm gonna just not do my riff, and then get ready for the next one. And so you're. The art of performing is not just performing, but also editing while you're going. More of it. Thank you to my guest, Joel Hodgson. The live show hits the State Theater in Minneapolis on November 17th. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Take a look under your bed. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This weekend, pheasant hunters statewide will be in the grass looking to bag a few birds, but one group of hunters in southern Minnesota used the pre-opener buzz last weekend to try and inspire the next generation of hunters. Reporter J.W. Cox has the story. Over the past 20 years, the Sibley County chapter of Pheasants Forever has hosted local youth for a day-long hunting safety and training event. Board member Dale Meyer has been a part of several and says the highlight for him is the nostalgia. It kind of brings you back to your youth. I'm just about 65 years old, you know, and <laughs> I kind of kind of can see myself in these kids, you know. I had a I had a dad that took me out and a couple of his good friends when I was that age and they showed me the ropes and I just feel I got to contribute back to that and and help somebody else with it, you know. And I love the cooks. I don't mind making a meal for these kids and and they love that and they look forward to it, and we just we got to keep them interested, and that's the main thing. I mean, it, it makes you feel good when you're done with the day. That meal he mentioned often consists of hot dogs, burgers, and even pheasant soup, capping off a day that's full of hands-on learning opportunities. We teach them how to trap shoot. With the trap shooting, they learn how to handle their gun and the safety practices of handling their gun in a crowd. From there, they go down and they do a field hunt. We plant birds for them, 
and they they uh, each got a chance at shooting a bird, and they actually do pretty well with that. Uh, it's quite surprising, considering uh, you know, twelve years to seventeen years, some of them are pretty small, and they're walking in some pretty deep grass once in a while. But uh, no, they do real good with that. And then from there, we take them up uh, and we teach them how to clean and prepare that bird for eating. And they have a a great time with the whole deal. Interest and participation in the event has ebbed and flowed over the years. Years ago, when we started it 20 years ago, we would have over 100 kids. And we just phased it out when the, the, the children didn't show any interest anymore. Well, then we started it up again, oh, I want to say like 15 years ago. And then we have the same problem that they didn't show interest, so we phased it out again. But the last five years, we've been having really good results with it. We get good feedback from it, and I hope it keeps uh, coming. You know, that if we don't get these kids involved, we're gonna we're gonna lose it. You know, uh, you got to keep them involved in the hunting tradition in Minnesota here. I hope it can continue that we can keep just growing this, you know, because it's a lot of fun. Meyer says there's a clear reason to keep bringing it back. You know, with today's pressure on these children, we need to get them away from the video games and show them that there is something else out there. And I, we feel that this is the best way to do it. Meyer says several chapters of Pheasants Forever have similar events statewide. Some even get greater participation. And he hopes it's something even more kids can get access to in the future. Pheasants Forever has an outreach program on it. We do talk about this uh, at our uh, state meeting of Pheasants Forever. It's a different. It's in a different part of the state every year, and and different board members get together and they discuss this stuff. and And that's where you get a lot of it out there. And they actually have a coordinator that takes care of it. And uh, it, it's 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 getting bigger, you know. And we feel we have to promote it to keep the youth interested. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, Take a kid fishing day, you know. Uh, we take a kid hunting, you know, and it's just one of them deals. It's a great deal, and I think all chapters should do it. My feeling is on it. We work so hard to buy land that we don't own. We give our land to the state. It goes into state projects, you know. It's open public hunting land, and if we're doing that, we might as well train the children to use it, you know, get them, get them out there. As for advice on chapters that might want to get something started, Meyer says just jump in with both feet. Put it out there and see what kind of response you get back on it. Even if you only get three kids that want to do it, by gosh, do it, because them three kids will put it out there for you. and They'll, they'll go tell their buddies, say, hey, this is fun. This is a great day. These guys really really taught us something today you know and i think that's the best thing you can do is is just do a little advertising what we do is we want to we use facebook and and social media you know it works great that's the first step in it And, and once you get them interested and signed up then you just get your guys together and say hey this is what we got going we need some volunteers let's put this program on it's it's simple gun safety learn them how to shoot trap and get them out in the field and hunt, and it's it's that simple. Fresh off the excitement of Youth Day, Meyer says he's more than ready to take part in this year's opener. I am going to be down in the area where the governor is opening, just simply because uh, I've got a grandchild getting baptized, and uh, I'm going to take the shotgun along, and if I can sneak out, 
I'm going to go out and hunt a few birds in Rock County. We see a lot of birds around here, and uh, it's up from a couple years ago. So I think, I think it's going to be all right, you know. It's a great day to get out and do it. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.